uh, weeks, in fact, five of them, basically talking about who we are as a church. What's our identity? What are we up to as a church? We uh, spoke, and Shane reminded us, even in our prayer time, that we're a community who feels like God's called us to fill our hearts and our city with the life of Jesus. And we do that in, in basically a couple of ways. We do that because by, by believing the gospel is the center of everything. And then we're a people who live off of the presence of God. And we're a people who plan and hope to be formed into the image of God. We're not just going to be left as we are, and then we are a people on mission. All of that is bound together, unified by community. We do this thing together. So we'll leave that up for a long time, and uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to do spot tests, and we're just going to call you out of the crowd and come tell us our vision. I'm kidding. So good to be together. Um, We're starting a journey into the book of James. This is our gift to you. It's a little booklet um, whereby each day, if you open up, basically explains, uh, it it shares the chapter that we'll be preaching on, roughly speaking, or the passage we'll be preaching on, should I say. So if you open up, this is our gift to you. Hold on to it. Um, Don't take extras unless you've got a spouse or loved one at home that you want to uh, take. We will have these available for the next couple of weeks for people who miss out. And um, what we want to do is we want to essentially invite you on a journey where we discover the power and the potency of Scripture. And we don't want this just to be a theory that we talk about. We want to discover the joy of a a community journey through the Scriptures. Uh, As we go through the book of James, I don't know if you know this, you probably do, that the first writings would have been brought in some sort of scroll uh, of sorts, and it would have been delivered to a community. Think about it. Imagine we as this group got given the letter from James. And we were the first recipients. There wasn't some sort of printing press where you could then go and say, okay, make photocopies for everyone and take them. We would have had to gather each week to discuss it and to read it out and to hear, what has James said? He's written from Jerusalem. We stuck out in the far reaches of the Roman Empire, and we got a letter about how to better follow Jesus. And they would have had to read through these scrolls, and some were sent from Paul, and some were sent from James, and somebody would have then rewritten it so they could send it on to the next church, and somebody else would have scribed it, and they did it meticulously and carefully so that loads and loads of scriptures were sent across the known world so that people could find out who is Jesus, what is he like, what has he done, and how do we find God through Jesus Christ. And this beautiful thing called the New Testament emerged as these apostles wrote these letters. We are going to study one of them. For the next 22-odd weeks, with some breaks, the first uh, portion is going to be a five-week journey into the first part of James. Then we're going to take a break and look at something else. Then we're going to do another five or six weeks, then take a break. And by the end of the year, you will be able to say, I am an expert in James. I know James. I have ingested James. James is in me. The book of James has become mine. I have eaten it, as uh, some people talk about scriptures. I've owned it. It's become a part of me. And so what we want to encourage you to do with this booklet is to um, try to stay a week ahead. Each uh, page is essentially one week. So you don't need to uh, have your daily devotionals every day through this. 
You simply need to do one a week. And it would be great if you could come uh, next Sunday. So we're already a week behind because you got this a week late. But today we will be going through page one, which you'll see is verses one through four. So you can check it out there. This week you don't get to plan ahead. But if you turn over to the next page, you will be able to uh, use this week, at least one of your morning devotionals, to essentially go, okay, verses five through eight, I want to study this prayerfully. I want to look at it. I want to ask questions of what could God be teaching me? And hopefully by the time you arrive on Sunday, you hear one of us preaching and you say, I heard that. I saw that. I spotted that. Whoa, I didn't see that. Oh, I'm not sure I agree with that. And we get to study the scriptures together as we walk this journey week by week. Does that sound fun? Amazing. Thrilling. Hey, you are thrilled by the look of this journey. Does that sound fun? I'm really am excited for you and with you because I think it's going to be awesome. So let's get it. Let's look after this. Let's treasure these things. Sometimes you get them and when they're free, you actually don't look after them as well as when you paid for them. So um, pay your money at the door. No, I'm kidding. It's our gift to you. But let's look after it and let's treasure this journey as best we possibly can. And maybe on Sundays, you want to bring it with you so that you can compare notes and take notes. This week, you may just want to use it to take notes. Cool. So we are in James, and we're launching into this book. And really, his intro is going to help us to understand the beautiful book of James. So I'm going to read it, and then we will go through it. And hopefully by the end, we will find our souls filled with God's word and encouraged. So James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. I am always amazed when I contemplate your word 2,000 years later. You preserved it. You used men and women to write it, but also to look after it and to, uh, and to describe it and to share it. And to, uh, you think through the Middle Ages, how many amazing men and women looked after these scrolls and, and treasured them that the word of God might be preserved. We thank you for the, the amazing centuries of you looking after your word that we might be able to enjoy it and to learn from it and to see you in it. We pray that this morning is no different, that we see you and we find your beautiful grace. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is James? Let's get to know this guy. He is inevitably a fairly important dude in the early church, uh, and, and you're right in assuming he's an important guy. He happens actually to be the very brother of Jesus. This is uh, one of the very rare letters that's written by one of Jesus' own siblings. Just take a moment to think about that. They, uh, they, were, they were brothers. They grew up in the same home. This guy knew Jesus. 
It's likely that this book is written about AD 42. Um, it's always hard to know exactly when a book is written, but it seems this was written AD 42. So that's about nine years after Jesus' ascension. And that's not a long time, historically speaking. Um, some uh, manuscripts, it, it's hard to find things that are written about Caesar's Gallic Wars that are almost two centuries after. These are fresh. This is the, this is the life happenings of the early church, and we've got some stuff that's written straight after the fact. It is fresh. It is right hot off the press. And James, the very brother of Jesus, is writing this letter to these churches, and we'll mention that in a bit. But think about it. I don't know if you guys uh, have any friends or family who are just mildly famous. I, I know for myself, I uh, had, a, or had a cousin, he's still alive, but he doesn't play cricket anymore, but he played cricket for the Dolphins. Growing up in KZN, if you had someone or you knew someone who played cricket provincially, you were pretty cool, especially if you liked cricket. And uh, whenever I heard people talking about uh, cricket, KZN cricket, I found myself sidling over and going, do you want any inside info? My cousin plays for them. Name dropping is a favorite pastime of most human beings. If we know someone fairly famous, we love to talk about it. But this is interesting because James, the brother of Jesus, doesn't do that. It's something fascinating happening here. In John chapter 7, while Jesus is still on earth and ministering, there is so much skepticism from his own family. In chapter 7, verse 5, it says, not even his brothers believed him. Jesus is bringing all these teachings about who he is and, and what he's doing, and he's performing miracles, and the people closest to him have their arms folded and are looking, going, no ways, we know this guy. In fact, we, you know, mum's told us about the kind of poos he did in his nappy. There is no ways. And they are close to him. They've watched him pick his nose. They know this dude. They're going, how do we trust that he is who he says he is? They, their hands are folded. There are people around Israel who are going, we've met the Messiah. And brother's arms are folded. Not even his brothers believed. They were too close to the action. It was like they had, had seen it. And, and this is a very important thing because you've now got James. You've got a human being just like all of us who probably doesn't mind dropping name every now and again and saying, hey, you know, I, I know somebody fairly important. And he writes and he introduces himself as a servant. So the skeptical brother who looked at Jesus and went, I don't even know if I believe he is who he says he is. A couple of years later, says of himself, I am a bondservant. That's the word. I'm actually a kind of slave who's given myself to his will. What happened to this guy? Something amazing. Inevitably, over the course of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection and the outpoured Holy Spirit, this guy became this guy, wow, the wow guy. He saw that his brother actually was who he said he is, and his eyes opened to the point that he introduces himself. He does no name dropping. All he does is he say, says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the, the creator of heaven and earth. Something happened in his mind and his heart that he was turned to say, wow. Wouldn't we love that? I pray that as we study the book of James, our hearts start to go, wow, I'm not folding my arms at Jesus anymore. I'm seeing who he is as James's journey went on. He carries on and he writes and he says, to the 12 tribes, um, 
scattered amongst the nations. He's writing to these churches. Remember that the people of Israel had been scattered. The, the Babylonian, uh, uh, Babylonian Empire had come into Israel a couple hundred years earlier, had ripped them out of uh, Jerusalem and the surroundings, and taken them all over. They were scattered around the known world. The Babylonians lost power, the Romans came into power, but there were Jewish synagogues scattered all over. And it was the first kind of places where the gospel began to flow. So as the, the gospel of Jesus gets uh, sort of traction in the world, the first place is these guys who come from Jerusalem go, where are we going to tell people? And they go to their Jewish cousins and aunties and uncles and friends and family all over the known world. And they go say, by the way, the Messiah arrived. He lived. He died. He rose again. And these, these Jewish communities are no longer uh, sort of predominantly uh, defined by being Jewish. They're defined by being followers of the way of Jesus. And James is one of the first leaders of the early church and he starts to write a letter. This might be the only letter he wrote. This is the only one we have. And he writes to these churches and he begins to share what he wants for them. That's how a letter happened. These are, you know, sometimes you read the Bible and you go, what's going on? This is a man who loved Jesus, who saw Jesus, and he writes a letter to churches all over. He says to the 12 tribes scattered amongst, he's going to all my brothers and sisters who love and follow Jesus, I've got some stuff to say. Next line is he says, greetings. That's cool. James was a friendly guy. Nice to know. He's warm. When people find Jesus, hopefully you'll experience that. When you come to Jesus, you don't keep your arms folded and your frown thick. You begin to warm up. Your countenance begins to become a, a one of love. And, and James inevitably is no longer the skeptical brother. He says, greetings. Pretty awesome. There's a warmth that comes with knowing Jesus and loving God's people. And uh, I hope that even if nothing else, you find yourself walking out going, I hope God warms my heart up to love people. And then James starts gently, as all good letters do. Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Wouldn't call that a gentle start to a letter, right? He basically goes for the jugular. Some people call this a kind of prologue. You know what a prologue is? You get kind of a little taste of what the rest of the story is going to be about. You, you get a little bit of a header, headline of what's going to happen. What's in the box? What are you about to? What's in the tin? You read the, the, the outline, and really what James is about to do is he's going to spend some time coaching a bunch of people on how to deal with trials and challenges. He's going to spend his energy simply teaching them how to deal with the challenges they're going to face because challenges will be faced. So, what is James saying here? I mean, this is verse 2. Just think about it. He's the verse 2, and he goes, Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. I don't know if that's an easy first line to swallow after all your greetings. What is he saying? Be happy when difficult things happen. I mean, at first reading, isn't that kind of what you hear? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind. I think a first reading could be found to, to sort of think that maybe James is going, even in tough times, just be happy. You and I know that if that's what James is saying, we're not that inspired to keep reading because it's pretty awkward advice. 
I have seldom in my life, even when my faith has been through the roof and I've been following and loving Jesus, seldom in my life have I gone through a, a trial and said, this feels amazing. Just so glad that I don't know where the, the paycheck's coming at the end of the month. Woohoo! Amazing to be in financial distress. Just love it. Thank you, Lord. Just love temptation, love the thought that I can just have something that's luring right in front of me and all I want is to take it. This is thrilling, God. Thank you for making my life so difficult with these difficult trials that are in front of me. He can't be saying that, right? Surely not. So, so what is he saying? Well, that's what we're going to spend most of our time speaking about because trials are happening. In fact, I think in a global perspective and societal perspective, it feels like trials have ramped up over the last couple of years. Uh, last recent time has been immensely trying. So if we can tap into this, what a thrill it might be because James somehow seems to say that it could be that in your trials, there could be joy that could come your way. Count it all joy. This is a passage worth slowing down and digging into because imagine the thought that you and I on the other side of trials could be able to count it joy rather than just simply miserable. And the word trials is interesting here. If you go study it, and my favorite place to study scripture is a free website called Blue Letter Bible. Write it down. You can study all the different Greek words for free, and it's called the interlinear section, and you can look at every Greek part of it, and it's just a lovely way to understand each text and, and, in its original form. And this word trials is the word that's interchangeable for trials and temptations. When uh, you read the word temptation, most of the time it could also be read trials. So much of the Bible is like that. There isn't an easy, always uh, simple translation, English to, to Hebrew or Greek. And so uh, this word is trials and temptations. So James is kind of suitcasing a whole bunch here. He's going, you know what? Consider it joy when you are tempted to give up. Con consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you're tried by deep temptation. Consider it pure joy when you're facing dark depression and you don't know how to face it, when you're struggling with a wayward spouse or a difficult friendship, maybe when you've got a difficult diagnosis and you're struggling to know how you're going to face this or a family member's got this diagnosis, when you're being persecuted for what you believe. All these things fit into this term Trials. So, what is he saying? How in the world could these kinds of things, where maybe you're looking at the bank balance and you're going, this is what I need and this is what I get. This is a trial. I don't know what I'm going to do with the big shortfall, the massive gap between what I need and what I've got. I don't know how to deal with the fact that I am this age and I expected to be doing this and I am actually doing this and I am feeling down and disheartened and disappointed with where I'm at. I don't know how to deal with the dark thoughts and the, the sense of, of deep uh, angst that I'm living inside, uh, with. These are trials. And, and James writes and he doesn't go, this is just persecution. He's, he's packaging it all. There's a real key here. And the key is in that word, consider, consider. So James here uses this word very carefully. The other way you could use this word consider is count it. He's simply saying, he's not saying it is joy when you go through trials. 
He is saying, count it as joy. Some translations will say, count it as pure joy when you go through. It's almost like he's using a kind of accounting analogy. Count it to your account even though it doesn't always feel that way. You can get some credit to your account even though it doesn't feel like it's being credited to your account. I'll, I'll double click on that in a moment. Because he carries on if we see in verse three and it says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James is saying, count it joy. You're going, how do I count it joy when it's not joyful? And he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be? Oh, nobody's reading. Let's read together. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, huge existential question for you. I want you to think of your whole life. I want you to think of humanity. I want you to think about the, the creator God, and I want you to answer this question to yourself or to the person next to you. Why do you exist? Chad, think about it. Why do you exist? Maybe another way to ask, ask this question is, what is the goal of your life? I'm gonna give you 20 seconds. I'm gonna let you think. What's the goal of your life? Why do you exist? Think about it for a moment. Whisper it to yourself, write it in your journal. Tell somebody else why you exist. What's the point of your existence? Can I make a suggestion that James thinks he knows why you exist? James' suggestion as to why you exist is so that you may be mature and complete. So that you, as a person, would become the kind of person who grows into maturity. He's gonna spend so much of his energy writing to believers to help them to understand, to help us to understand that the goal of my and your life is to grow up into spiritual, Christian, Christ-like maturity. And maturity comes in multiple forms. It comes in, basically, I think, in these forms of these three things. Presence, the ability to know what it's like to be with God. A mature follower of Jesus knows what it's like to be with God. Jesus modeled this for us, for himself. He knew how to live with the Father. If you want to become mature, you know how to do what Jesus did in that you live in intimacy with your Father in heaven. Not only that, your character gets formed into his image. You learn to become the kind of person who is formed into the image of Jesus. You love the truth. You hate lies. You become a person of contentment and peace and presence. You're not shooting after money and, and wealth. You're able to live free from the need to be liked all the time. You're able to tap joy from life, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor. You're able to tap joy from life, whether you're saying, uh, people are saying you're awesome or whether they're saying you're awful. You're not prone to anger and explosive behavior. You're not longing for material goods all the time. 
You're not driven by gossip and being in the know. Your character is being formed into the image of Jesus. You're becoming a person who is like Christ, who walked this world filled with trials, but with a character that was radically aligned to heaven's agenda for the world. That's what it means. And, and also to be on this mission that Jesus, to be able to love and be loved, to love the, the least and the lost, to love all kinds of different people, close and far. And James looks and he says, I don't know what your thoughts are about what you want to become, but my goal for you, and in fact, I believe Jesus' goal for you is to grow into maturity. This is a game changer. Because if that's not the goal of your life, if the goal of your life, for what it's worth, is happiness or, uh, you know, just superficially, I just want to be happy or contentment or friendship or family or whatever else you may say, it's going to be very difficult to count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you have a different lens through which you look at life. If happiness is the lens through which you look at life and trials come your way, you do everything you can to swat those things away, to avoid them, to pretend they're not happening because happiness must be my lot. But what if James is right? What if we all were the kind of people who realized that the kingdom agenda, that, that Jesus' agenda for our life is to grow into wholeness, it's to grow into maturity? What if we really got that? Then we might, we might just start to realize that the trials we face could be producing in us perseverance. And that perseverance might finish its work so that we might be mature and complete. Think about it for a moment. You see, that's what James is trying to get in our heads. He's saying, count it all joy when you face trials. Why? Why would I do that? Because trials are the very thing that are forming you into the image of Jesus. They are some of the finest materials to shape your life into becoming more and more like Jesus. Now listen to me carefully. What I'm not saying about trials is that trials should just be, uh, you know, celebrated. We should search for trials. Uh, that you know, facing trials, uh, you know, is just easy. It's not going to be that. The scriptures teach us obviously and often that a lot of our trials include lament and 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 mourning and and being disappointed and sad and actually facing the fact that we are in a bit of a tough patch. Actually, in fact, facing our trials well with faith is often to recognize that this is painful because often our trials are given to us to help us to see what is the state of our actual faith. Michael Novak, he talks about these three different types of, of belief. He talks about public beliefs, private beliefs, and core beliefs. Listen carefully to this. Public beliefs are those beliefs that we want other people to think we believe, okay? We may not really believe them, but we want others to think we do so that we can get along with others and give them the right answers. That's a public belief. Everyone has loads of public beliefs, and we just go, yeah, cool, tolerance, happy with that, and we thumbs up, cool, cool, cool. That's what you know, public beliefs are. Then private beliefs are things we think we believe until it's tested. 
beautiful example. Uh, Peter says to Jesus, I will follow you forever, Jesus. Trust me, I will. Amazingly, the cock crowed the next morning and he woke up and he went, oh my gosh, I said I would, but I didn't. I thought I would. I really did. I really thought that that's what I believed. I thought I would stand up for Jesus at any stage, at any time, but I couldn't. Those are private beliefs. They're things we believe, we think we believe, until it's actually tested. And then thirdly, there's core beliefs. Core beliefs are things that are revealed by our actions. They are the things we actually believe. Core beliefs we will never violate. You never violate your core beliefs. The funny thing is you discover your core beliefs. You don't even know them until, until a trial comes your way, until suddenly you're facing a moment and people uh, begin to you know, uh, push you out and you're not feeling as warmly welcomed and loved anymore. And, and the little need to be loved forces you to maybe make a few compromises so that you feel in again. And you go, oh my gosh, I thought I believed that I would never compromise that until one of my core beliefs, which is I need to be loved. I need to be accepted in this group and we just let go of those beliefs. We thought we believed them. Our core beliefs are the things that really we hold on to that we believe we need to stay alive. Here's the thing. Core beliefs are revealed in trials. We don't always know what our core beliefs are until we're under threat, until something exposes what's really going on in our hearts and our minds. Deep loss, real pain, threat to something that we were hoping for. It might be an income or an outcome that we were desiring, and suddenly that thing's gone away. And then you find yourself maybe in despair, and you're going, why am I despairing? All I'm losing is potentially a relationship I thought I wanted, but you believed that you couldn't survive without that relationship. You realize your core beliefs, they begin to get exposed when trials come your way. Let me lighten it for a moment. Our kids um, have something that we call poo money. Now, I need to explain that. We got a dog named Max uh, not long ago, and Max is a delightful golden retriever. We inherited it from Nikki's auntie, and he's a sweet dog, and we love him, but Max does what all dogs do when they need to relieve themselves. And so our garden is uh, filled with Max's debris all over the show, and Nix and I thought, you know what, here's a creative way to help our kids earn some money. So we said, guys, we will give you a certain amount of money for every landmine that you pick up, and you can start to build a little bit of uh, you know, money, and we'll give it to you at the end of the term, depending on how much you help us. Sound like a decent strategy? Nix and I are not crazy for picking up landmines. So giving away a bit of our own trials that we face. But... Uh, so we, we do it the first time, and the kids are so excited about, you know, building up some money, and they, you know, they do their stuff, and they're counting because, you know, they've got to know exactly how many they're getting, and at the end, they say, Dad, we did it. Everything's gone. It's clear. Here's our numbers. Give us the money, and I say, guys, I've put it down. Here's the money. It's Chloe. Here's yours. Josie. Here's yours. Anna. Here's yours. It's yours, and they go, 
Dad, we want the money. I say, but you've got the money. I'll give it to you at the end of the term. We want the money, Dad. I'm going, but you've got it. Look, there's a 20 there. There's a 12 there. There's a whatever. Dad, we need the money. What they don't understand is that I counted it. I credited it, credited it to their account. They'll get it at the end of the term. The money is theirs. It's banked. You, as a human being, are going to face lots of landmines, stuff that stinks, stuff you don't want to face, stuff you've just got to do. And there are going to be these little forks in the road where you can either face them by faith in Jesus and walk with him through it, or take a shortcut and avoid it and pretend it's not happening. But if you face it with Jesus and you actually don't dodge the tax, and you actually do go back and ask for forgiveness, and you actually do choose to believe the best, even though you think somebody has done you wrong, you go back to them, and you don't tell yourself the story that you would like to tell about how they've hurt you, and how they've let you down, and how much better they could have done if they'd just done this, and you go to them, and you believe the best, and you love them. Whatever it is, if you fight that temptation and you pick up the phone and you say, man, everything in me wants to look at porn, but I know I shouldn't, pray for me, brother. And you choose not to. And you fight and you pick up your poop and you do it by faith. You know what happens? Your maturity account gets credited. Counted as joy. My brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because as you persevere, your maturity account is being credited and credited and credited and credited, and you don't know it and you can't feel it, and you might not be able to see the results until the end of the term or the end of the year or the end of the decade, but count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials and you face them by faith and you face them with Jesus holding you, and you say, I want to trust you through this. I am not taking the shortcut. I'm not taking the round route. I am taking the route with you, and we are going to face this obstacle. What happens is you get credited, and a little thing gets put in the, 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 the maturity account. that You are growing. You just can't see it. You're just like my kids who go, well, I can't see it. But as you do it more and more, as you trust Jesus through your trials, you find that somehow your spiritual shoulders start to broaden. Somehow your faith starts to deepen. Somehow your soul starts to mature. And somehow this passage begins to become more and more rich to you as you realize that these trials are actually developing maturity in you. And you start to draw the lines between your trials and who God is making you into. And the more you do that and the more lines you draw, you find that you start to see a picture of a beautiful tapestry that God is developing in your life called a mature Christ-like self. And when that starts to happen, you begin to be able to count it all joy. That doesn't mean that losing a loved one is a celebration. It means that as you go through it, 
You can understand that as you hold Jesus, there is a maturity account that's being credited. There is a sense of God growing you. There is a sense of God doing something in you. As you take your tears to him and you weep with Jesus and with Jesus' community, you are growing. As you pick up your socks and you pitch up to life group, even though you are tired and exhausted and annoyed with someone and you get there because you choose love, you are growing. Every time you choose to just push through the poop and to trust Jesus in it, count it as all joy because there is credit coming to your account. You are growing up. You are getting to know Jesus. You're getting to know him. You're getting to enjoy him. Unfortunately, getting to know him means you're getting to know that he is a cruciform-shaped maturity. That means that Jesus' highest form of maturity was him on a cross. So if you do want to grow into maturity, there is some good news and some tough news. The good news is that it's accessible to anyone. The tough news is that maturity often includes sacrificial faith. It often means that feeling of, oh, I'm giving up. Oh, I've got to get, I've got to actually trust God in this pain. I've actually got to give him my pain. I've actually got to say no to something. But on the other side, you are growing. And as that credit starts to build, so too does your faith. Listen to this quote, if maturity into Christ-likeness is your goal, if we could put that up, I think it's the next one. If maturity into Christ-likeness is your goal, i.e. to know his presence better, to become like him in his character, to, to love him the way people, uh, he loves people, if that's your goal, then the height of maturity is defined by a splintery Roman cross on which Jesus hung. I know, it's a bit of a downer to end on that, Right? But I think it's important. It's important because sometimes we look at maturity and we go, maturity is me with my empire and everyone loving me. And Jesus ended his height of maturity when everyone had left him. And he faced it alone. And yet he did it in love. That's not to say that you're going to die alone and lonely. That's absolutely the opposite. The point is, is that each time you face your lonely, each time you face your disappointment, you face it with the one who went through the loneliness on your behalf. You face it with the one who went through the pain on your behalf. You are growing into Christ-likeness. You're not shaking your fist at the world. You're not shaking your fist at God. You're bringing your reality to him. And he says, I know it better than anyone ever could. The good news when it comes to those core beliefs is that God can change them. As they revealed, trials will reveal your core beliefs. You're going to find out, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's inside of me. But by the grace of God, he can change them. That's basically what repentance means. Repentance is go, oh my goodness, I've discovered inside of me some core beliefs. I thought I believed this, but I actually believe this. <gasps> but you actually love me anyway even though my core beliefs are not what I thought they were. But now repentance is, God, I give those core beliefs and I ask you to come and change me. I invite you into those things. My trigger reaction when I was threatened, I give it to you and I trust you. That's the good news. Two quick thoughts. Maybe the band can come up. Firstly, when you're in your trials, can I suggest that you pause and find perspective so often in our trials, when we're in this space, 
We just want them done. And we're like those ducks who are sort of running on water, trying to get off. And we're just like, our feet are moving super fast because all we want is to get off this terrible thing. And sometimes God would just say, slow down, pause and reflect. What is this trial revealing about my core beliefs? What am I discovering about myself in this very difficult reality that I just need to pause and reflect and go, God, you're showing me something. Instead of trying to just get out of this difficult, stinky situation, what have you shown me about what I really think about my faith, what I really think about people, what I really believe love to be? Can I ask you, write that down. Am I pausing? And then the second and final thought is that we would get and give perspective together when it comes to this. You see, we want to pause and get perspective, but where do I get this in the passage? I get this because James wrote a whole letter for us. What an amazingly kind guy. He models what it means to be a brother and a friend in trial, where he simply says, consider it all joy. Instead of thinking about your trial, I want to, I want to ask you for a moment to think about someone else's trial that they're going through right now. What is it maybe that God's revealing in them? What are some of the core beliefs that may be getting exposed in this season? James is modeling something very deep here. We can't do this alone. We're not meant to go through trials alone. We're meant to be able to pick up the phone to get into someone's space and go, I'm going through a trial. We're also meant to be able to spot brothers and sisters going through trials and say, I can see it. And I want to help you as a brother and a sister. I want to get into your life so that you can understand this text that maybe this trial is an opportunity to get some credit in your maturity account. And I want to be that friend who can help you to see it. I want to be a James to you. I want to be someone who can help you to get this perspective and look back on this very difficult thing that you're going through. And I want to help you to see that this is not just something we need to get through. This is something we need to grow through. And we're going to grow through it. And I'm going to be your brother. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your sister who walks you through this. I'm going to be your James because you are becoming like Jesus. And it's my task to help that happen. And so let's do this together. Jesus, let's stand. Trials are not fun. Never were, never will be, I don't think. Temptations are difficult. But as we go through them, I pray that time would coach us by the, with the help of your Spirit that in fact, they're helping us grow into Christ-likeness. And Jesus, for many of us, including myself, we ask that our core belief would more and more grow into one that says, I am made for Jesus. I am meant to become like Jesus. I am meant to become a person of love, a person of sacrifice, a person of faith, a person of intimacy with the Father, a person of deep contentment, whether with much or with little. I'm made for that. Now help me, Lord, with your spirit to recognize when the trials are gifts to coach me into maturity and help me not to despise them or to wish them away or to skim through them, but to engage with them by faith and to hold your hand through them and to trust that it is being counted to our account, to our maturity account, to our growth into Christ-likeness account. 
and that in the days, weeks, months, probably decades, we will look back and say, thank you for that trial. It grew me to know Jesus. It grew me to trust Jesus. It's grown us to become a people of maturity, not lacking anything. Help us to be brothers and sisters, to be family who move each other on towards maturity, who give each other the kind of perspective that says, I can see that this is something God is helping you in, that God is with you, and we are going to grow together. As we sing, Jesus, we commit ourselves to inviting your Holy Spirit into our trials and to become James-like people who walk with one another, who are great brothers.